This is the EdTech Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. sitting there with a pen and paper. Virtual reality is an interesting medium where students can access a wide range of content. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the EdTech Podcast brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. So today is another great day because we're back in the studio with one of my favorite EdTech companies, iStation. And we've had them on a few times now, expanding on the benefits of blended learning, technology impacting early literacy, and personalizing instruction with predictive assessments. Make sure to give those episodes of the podcast a listen. We'll link below. But the narrative thread that runs through all of those conversations and what we're getting to today is the necessity of data in instruction. Surprisingly, the more you dig into the numbers, the more you can personalize instruction for every student, find the right balance of technology in the classroom, and guide students to benchmarks faster. So how do you guide teachers to effectively use the numbers? To answer those questions, I'd like to welcome back Julie Kalinowski, Special Projects Lead for Customer Success at iStation, and welcome for the first time Sabrina Jones, Professional Development Manager for Customer Success at iStation. Julie, Sabrina, great to have you both on. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We're excited to be here. So you two work together Mm -hmm. in your own customer success department at iStation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Describe to me a little bit of what that day-to-day looks like. You know, what are you actually doing when it comes to customer success? How are you leading clients to utilize the data effectively? Um, Well, I think it all begins with the student in mind, and that's pretty much how our company was founded, is is keeping that student first and foremost in our thought process Mm -hmm. as we design our product and our assessments and everything. And our world in professional development, we're going to work with the educators so that they can make a bigger impact with the students every day. And and the way we do that is we put that educator first, try to make his or her life a little easier by giving them information that they need at their fingertips much, much quicker so that they can do what they became educators to do, and that is to teach. Right. So that that happens every day um, throughout our entire company. Right. And I know that you both spent time as educators before ever coming to iStation, which I think... A is what makes iStation such a great company is that y'all have the experience before you then start evangelizing the product and the techniques that iStation um, supports, right? But it also gives you that frame of reference for how to communicate to the teacher and the challenges that actually affect the educator. Um, So when did you both first get a taste for how data can impact teaching in the classroom when y'all were educators? You know, when did you first feel like, wow, this is really useful or wow, I wish I had more of this? I am for me. When I first started teaching my, my first year, you have this grandiose idea that you're going to change the world and that you're going to impact every child and, and they're going to grow and you're going to see these tremendous results. And I think every educator goes in with that thought that they want to make a difference and make an impact. But I will say I was very naive in my thinking mm. because I thought I just had to go in with the passion and then that would drive everything from there. And yes, you need passion, but at the same time, without the data, I wasn't able to make the impacts that I wanted to make. So an example was my first year was really based on hit or miss. You know, I'm I'm trying these things. I'm I'm trying to differentiate instruction, but at the same time, I'm not differentiate it enough. Yeah. And by that, I mean, without data, I couldn't go down to that granular level that I needed to go because 
when we talk education and we talk about percentiles and, and talk about uh, tiers or different levels of instructional supports, we need to understand where students fit within those ranges, right? And I made the mistake of looking at all of my struggling students as being all just the same strugglers. They struggled with the same thing. I, I did one lesson, kind of a one-size-fits-all approach. Mm -hmm. And when I started utilizing data, that's where I saw the biggest impact because that's where I could say, oh, gosh, you know, Sabrina is in the third percentile and Molly is in the 20th percentile. Both still very struggling students, but struggling at a different capacity. Sure. And so, again, to me, it was more about wow, data opened up my eyes to be able to provide insights, which then provided opportunities yeah. for growth. How about for you, Sabrina? Well, I, I've been teaching for a long time before I you know, came to work with iStation. And I think the hardest thing for teachers to do is, is they want to be able to see that they are making an impact. And beyond putting physical light bulbs above the student's head, you really don't know whether they got it or not, what you taught. Mm -hmm. And so one way to do that is to collect data. When I first started collecting data, it was pencil paper tasks with like sticky notes and things like that, because I wanted to be sure that what I was doing was working. And data answers those questions for educators. And it also lets us to know either to continue down that path or maybe change that path, uh, you know, differently. And there's been several students within my career that if I hadn't had the the right data, they would not be where they are today. They would have been in, labeled in special education hmm. when they really didn't need it. They just needed differentiated instruction and some time. And, and one little girl, Isabel, she's now 26. She's married. She has a kid and doing great. You know, yes, I'm that old. And um, <laughs> <laughs> but if they want she was going to be put in special education very quickly. And I said, just just give me some time with her and get, let me collect some data on her. And sure enough, you know, she grew two years in one. Wow. She was still behind. Yeah. But she wasn't as behind as she used to be. Right. Yeah. Well, because even though like the like y'all mentioned earlier, the the art of teaching, the science of teaching, which is a little more interpersonal, a little more mm -hmm. like gut feeling that can only take you so far. Correct. Once you get to that limit, then you might have to make judgment calls like that mm -hmm. without any kind of background information. Like, oh, yeah, maybe the student does need to be in special education. But it's like, what is informing that for you? Mm -hmm. a, a gut feeling, right? And what kind of benefit does that have for the student? So, yeah, it's great to see like that impact on like the individual, right? That you Absolutely. can point to the one person that totally benefited because you brought data into their instruction. I just think is always really powerful. Um, now, what about managing that data? Do you feel like educators ever have any reservations about maneuvering through all that data once it does become more accessible to them? 100%. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Because you don't know. I mean, because one piece of data, first of all, you need multiple pieces of data. Right. And so and in order to balance and manage it all, it, it, it's a craft, you know, yeah. and it can be a daunting and overwhelming at the same time. And you want to make sure that you're making the correct decision. And so I think where Julie and I have a lot of experience is where we'll work together and help educators dig through their data and say, what is this data telling you? And what's really interesting without either one of us of ever me meeting some of the children, we're able to go in and look at this data and say, hey, it looks like the student has, you know, s some tendency might be dyslexic or mm -hmm. these are some things. Have you considered this? Have you considered that? And they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, this kid. Yeah. No, we didn't know this. The student. We knew the data. We knew how to interpret the data. And I think that is what's difficult. I think teachers are bombarded with tons of data. 
But what do you do with the data? That right. that's the art that we talk about, the art of teaching. Right. And Sabrina and I, you know, we, we worked we've worked together for many, many years and we developed um a process. We work for for a company called iStation and we developed a process when we go out and talk about data, about using data driven decision making mm-hmm. in in everyday um, in classrooms, at the campus level, at the district level, and we we talk about the problem solving process. So we mm-hmm. we look at data from from that because I think if you if you break it down into steps, it right. becomes a lot more manageable for educators. So right. we we start off with identifying where an area of weakness may be, and that's going to be different for a whole class, right? Mm-hmm. I might have twenty five kids, and I'll have different pockets of needs for for each of those kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once we've done that, we start to kind Kind of analyze and like Sabrina said, that's when we go in and we dig deeper and we start looking at other things to help even differentiate within those groups of kids. And then we're able to come up with a plan. Mm-hmm. And that's the instructional piece, that's um, you know, various things, goal setting and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then the last piece is that measure and reflect. Because if we aren't, like Sabrina said, able to measure what we teach. Mm-hmm. And see the impact or make decisions. The purpose of data is to help you adjust what you're doing, if needed, very quickly. Right. And so we don't want to have to wait um, a very lengthy time to make those adjustments. And that's a beautiful thing about what we do um, as well is we offer our students um, through our company, we offer that that monthly automatic assessment. Right. And we believe in that formative assessment because we don't want to have to wait just for beginning of the year or middle of the year, end of the year data, there's not enough time there mm-hmm. to be able to make the impact on student growth right. that all of us want to see. Right. And then the, the and differentiation is not necessarily just for those struggling students. I think it's imperative. And, and a lot of times the kiddos who are on grade level or above, they kind of get left out because we're always worried about those struggling readers. But right. guess what? We have kiddos who who also need differentiation, but it needs to be on the other end of the spectrum. And that's why I think we do such a great job of, of collecting that data very quickly and very valid and reliable and having the teachers to gain trust in the data. Right. Once a teacher trusts the data, then you have them hooked because it, the data doesn't make you a better teacher. It just makes you more efficient. Right. And with efficient with your time, with your planning, with your curriculum, things like that. And so I think we differentiate across the ability levels within a classroom. Well, and then so. those things make you a better teacher. Absolutely. Right. So what aspects of curriculum can actually be converted into tangible numbers? And when we look at, I don't know, if it's student like per student growth on one subject or whether it's growth over an entire uh, like period for a whole classroom, whether it's one department, whether it's another department. I mean, I feel like there's just like you said, so much data, so much information, how much of it actually can be quantified and be useful um, once you actually turn it into data and then start to analyze it. Well, without data, let's just think about that. What are we teaching? Right. We're teaching a curriculum, right? Because that's what our district has said or our state has said or whatever. But how are we knowing that is effective? And we only know that by measuring it. And data is one way to measure it. And and data can come in a variety of forms. We can collect it through observation because there are some things that are observable behaviors. Reading behaviors are observable, not measurable. But what is measurable is their grasp of phonics, their grasp of letter knowledge, the grasp of comprehension. So when you break it down that way, you can measure pretty much anything 
with either observations or with numbers, you know, like you said before. And our mantra that, that we, you know, go across the nation, you know, I guess proselytizing. I can't say that word. You say that word for me. <laughs> Pre- oh, my goodness. Preaching. We'll just go with that one. Protelicizing? Yeah, that would be close enough. We have a phonics program for that. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Um, (laughs) But saying you need to teach what you measure and measure what you teach. Yeah. Because if we only teach it to teach it, what's the point? Mm -hmm. Because the purpose of all education is to have informed citizens as they grow up. And so you only get them, if you are a teacher from K through 12, you have eight to nine months to make the biggest impact you can make for that grade level. So data is imperative that we gather it, we interpret it, and we use it, and we continue that cycle. Mm. Yeah, and you know, and to your point of, of how do you quantify, how are you, what do you measure, and so forth, you know, there are, like Sabrina said, there's various ways to measure and, and to capture data. You know, you have you have your observational data, you have um, interim assessments, you have cumulative assessments, yes, formative assessments, formative assessments, and they all serve a, a very different purpose. I am, I don't believe that there's one silver bullet of Mm-mm. one actual piece of data that can make the largest impact. It's a collective um, form. So for me, it really is about kind of creating and solving that data puzzle. Mm-hmm. And you have various pieces to do that. And data to me, like Sabrina said too, is data, they're, they're like a thermometer. Right? Yeah. They measure whether or not a child has a fever. However, if we don't do anything about that fever, then it's not going to change. And that's what I say about what we talk about teaching is data measure whether or not a child is struggling. Right. Now, it's not going to change unless we do something about it. Right, exactly. And so we as educators are the ones that go in and essentially provide the the remedy for that fever. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be different for every child. Right. And it has to be the right remedy for the fever because we could treat mistreat the fever. Right. And so we want to make sure that we're using the right tool for it. You know, and I think one of the favorite analogies we use, it's, it's like a bathroom scale. They just, it's, she says a thermometer. I say it's a bathroom scale. I can get up, get on that bathroom scale and either like what I see or don't. And I can get on and off that scale every day. It's not going to change in the direction I want it to change in right. unless I do something different about my daily habit, whether it's changing my diet, exercising and doing things like that. So a student's data is not going to change in the direction we want it to change in right. unless we are addressing that student's needs that will make it go up the way we want it to go up. Right. So, I mean, I think that's and when we say that during training, they're like, yes, I said I could get on and off several times. But if I'm sitting there <laughs> stuffing my mouth with Oreos like I really like to do, it's not going to do what I need it to do. The scale's gonna, not going to move in the right direction. Right. So. It's not just reading the numbers. No. It's enacting on no. the numbers. Yeah. And I, I feel like the most classic thermometer bathroom scale in the classroom would be just your assessment. Right. Absolutely. Your test, your exam, um, it's the classic way to measure growth, Mm -hmm. to determine how your student is doing with the curriculum. Um, But I think differentiations start to occur when you look at what makes a quality assessment, right? Correct. And to get quality data, you need to have a quality assessment that Mm -hmm. is standardized, that you understand like, okay, this question is measuring X comprehension skills and we can tell based on their answer Mm -hmm. what their skill level is, right? What would you all say defines a quality assessment? If you had to break down the key components that like this and this and this make for an assessment that is comprehensive. I don't know if you can summarize it. Well, I think it needs to, first of all, you need to know what we're measuring. Right. 
and why we're measuring it. What's the purpose? And once you establish that purpose, so if we're looking at reading, the purpose is, can the student read and comprehend? So you have to go backwards from there to develop an assessment that will measure that. If I give the kid a math test to measure reading, it's not going to work, <laughs> right, right? Right. And so I think it, it starts with the end in mind, and you go backwards from that. I think it needs to be quick, and I think it needs to be very reliable. So I don't want any like I call them the trick questions or trick answers. Either you know it or you don't mm-hmm. because it's okay either way. That's the thing. And for so long, teachers get that happy little red marker and start marking things wrong and not analyzing why they chose that wrong answer. Right. You know? And so don't give them any trick answers. Just do you have it? Do you don't? And let's move on because we can we can deal with all of that. So I think it starts with the end in mind and needs to be very quick, very easy, and valid and reliable based on what you're trying to measure. Yeah. And Julie, right. you know, no, and I agree with the validity and reliability is going to be key. And in in the development of that instrument, I think again depends on what you're trying to measure. Yeah. But in, in terms of what we we do at iStation, um, our assessment's called ISIP. And it's been through countless studies. Mm-hmm. And as it was being built, we looked at external measures. We looked at different reading assessments, measuring the same skills that are predictive of future reading success. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously doing it in a computerized, computer adaptive way and doing it um, in technology. But the goal, like Sabrina said, was we're looking for automaticity. We're doing it very quickly so that we can give back instructional time to teachers. Mm-hmm. That's the whole purpose. That's the golden right? ticket right there. That is the golden ticket. We don't want to take up weeks and weeks of assessing students to then that data is going to become stale and old because we haven't been able to actually provide instruction for those students because we're still assessing others. others. Right. And so by the time it comes back around to assess again, you haven't provided that Instructions, right? So, the time to actually to use the data, to use the data, correct. Right. And so, that, and as far as and and making sure that you have a nice normative sample, absolutely. Um, that that really looks at a demographic that you're trying to capture. So there's a there's various things that go into making a quality assessment. But I, you know, I wouldn't work for for the company I work for if I didn't believe in what we do. And absolutely. In the impact we've had um, on student growth, in various states across across the country. Yeah. Well, okay. I want to read y'all this quote from an Ed Week article I found. Um, it's by Gregory Cizek. Cizek? C-I-Z-E-K. I do not know how to say that. He is a distinguished professor of educational measurement at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So he said this, if it takes full-time highly specialized expertise to generate a handful of standards aligned items and tasks, What prayer does a classroom teacher have of regularly producing them for routine classroom assessments? So this, I think, is a point I wanted to get to. We saw a lot of success and a lot of stringent standards with Common Core. I mean, yes, it it has some things that people aren't super happy with. But overall, I think it set a good standard for district-wide, nationwide. Like, here are some good, um, good standards to try and assess if your students are prepared for the workforce, prepared for life, all that good stuff. Um... But I, I think the benefit of data is when you can use it in your day-to-day kind of like uh, handout to handout kind of instruction where you can get a sense for not from exam to exam how a student is doing, but day-to-day are they comprehending phonics better today, right? right. Um, and I think setting the standards for that individual growth can be more difficult, you know, more uh goalpost setting, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that is a lot of work. So I guess I just wanted to pick your brains a little bit on have you all found ways to implement 
standardized goals and assessments on that small per classroom scale that still retains the art of teaching and makes it easy for you know people to maneuver those standards day to day. Sure. Yeah. Well, actually, goal setting is one of the our favorite things to work on because yeah. we need to be able to set um, realistic, measurable goals for every student. Not every student will reach this point. No, because each student will get there, but they're going to get there at their own pace. And that's where you really have to start looking at where they currently are performing and where do I need them to be in order to close if we're looking at intervention where I need them to be in order to close that achievement gap and in, in order to do that we have to work on a very individualized basis for the students I think it's unrealistic and for anyone to come and say uh, you know Ms. Kalinowski all of your students need to pass the third grade state test mm. unrealistic because all kids are not the same size all nine-year-olds don't wear the same size shoe <laughs> All nine-year-olds don't need the same instruction. Right. And so that's where we come in and we look at on a very individualized basis, looking at research, saying, what does research say? And what can we expect to set a goal for this student? Because if we set an unrealistic goal for that student who's already struggling, that student, by the time he's in third grade, already feels like a failure. Right. And if I set an unrealistic goal for them and they don't meet it, now I've just added to that. Right. So you bring that student into that. And, and in your everyday thing, they have their own folders. They have their own charts. They have their own graphs that they're a part of the process. And I think that's key. And it is identifiable. And even without numbers, so to speak, so to speak, I can look and most educators, you know, when you, when that kid got it. You yeah. just, there's, I don't know how to explain it yeah. other than you have to experience it. And teachers know. And when they see it, they want to see it again. That light bulb that, moment. They see that light yeah. bulb moment. And they want to see, see it again. And what we do is we teach them how do you duplicate that for every student. Right. You know? You right. Think? No, I, I agree. It's not a one size fit all, fits all. Um, we, when we talk about the goal setting, one thing to keep in mind, too, is even though they need to be reasonable and measurable, we also have to be extremely motivated mm. absolutely meaning we need to increase motivation in our educators because then that translates over to the students and if students start taking ownership of their own data as well like Sabrina was mentioning through data folders that's where you're going to see the biggest bang for your buck and that's where kids are going to make the most growth we've seen uh, i'm constantly reading research on on data and on student growth and on goal setting and the growth mindset and all these things and it's impressive to see how impactful just allowing students to take ownership of that data will transform into them making growth, even if instruction doesn't change very much because they're involved in the process. Mm -hmm. However, when we start talking about setting goals, and Sabrina said it's it's not reasonable for us to say that a student that, that's three years below grade level is going to catch up in one year. That is true. However, there's research also that supports the fact that we need to grow them to at one. double the rates yeah. of their yeah. on-track peers. So yes, there there needs to be targeted, effective instruction and very skill-driven interventions in mm -hmm. place to target the areas that that need to to be increased. Right. And then when you bring that student into it. They, they have skin in the game and it's data is not a secret. Let the kids know. It's not like they don't know they're a gifted reader. They, it's not like they don't know they're not a gifted reader. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you bring them into it, that goes to that motivation. And once you get them motivated, I mean, it's a challenge for them and they want to see themselves succeed. And then you do those incremental 
milestones or benchmarks, if you will, say, okay, you know, Julie, next week when we do this, when we test again on phonics, I need you to be right here. And we draw, uh, physically draw a little line where I need you to be and let them choose what kind of rewards they want. You know, if I come into my third grade class giving them stickers, no, not mm-hmm. so much. My kindergarten students might like that. And yes, you can goal set for kindergarten students. <laughs> they do it with little blocks. They stack yes. them on top. It's okay. They can do that. Um, but you just bring them into the whole process of it and give them choice. Just like educators and adults like choice, so do kids. And, and I always taught my classroom was a dictatorship-led democracy. Mm. So they had choice. <laughs> they learned those two words really fast. Yes. What is a dictator and what is a democracy? <laughs> and they had choice, but it was within my choices. You right. know, but they still felt empowered. And the same thing with teachers, too. We want to feel empowered, too. And we say this about professional development and education from a pe- professional development point of view. Often it feels like it's happening to you and not with you. Same thing with education and instruction. Those students feel like it's coming at them and to them and not with them. So mm. bring them into that part. Let them choose. Hey, we're going to start doing you know, science next week. And do you want to study tadpoles or spiders? They're both under my curriculum. And my head is what I'm thinking. Right. But which one do you want to do first? Right. right? Boom. Yeah. yeah. It's it's such a simple solution <laughs> that has such a tangible impact. I mean, I can only imagine the kind of effect it would have had on my education if all my educators approached the curriculum that way, especially on kind of an assignment to assignment basis Correct. with like, all right, so we're going to be exploring X thing. Y'all can either do a project that's a little more hands-on. I've got this like book report you can do. I've got X thing, right? And kind of letting mm-hmm. you guide your own comprehension of the skills. I got a lot of that in like my my GT classes that I did in Texas, which were... A lot of fun. And just those teachers are naturally going to, I think, um, explore the curriculum in a more like fluid way because that's just kind of they had the free reign to do that. But I think it's always difficult to find the resources as a teacher to do those things in a way that feels productive. Right. Because empowered to do those. Right. Exactly. Because I think without the data resources, without that infrastructure and the goal setting, that kind of step away from total control of the curriculum and putting it back in the hands of the students can feel like, oh my gosh, I'm losing control. I have no idea, you know, what's going on anymore. And like you lose focus. Um, And I think that's why it's so cool that data, so number driven, so cold, hard facts, right, is influencing more nuanced, more personalized education. And I just think that's so powerful. It is very powerful. Yeah. yeah. I love it. I love it because it takes, it kind of takes the guesswork out too. Mm-hmm. Um, and through some research that I did, I, I read up on a study that that said it was a neuroscientist. I can't remember his name now, but it, it talked about how we as humans in general, we tend to make decisions based on emotion versus logic. And especially as an educator, because you do have a passion for what you do. Mm-hmm. You you don't just go into education. Obviously, we know it's, remember, it's for the money. It's for the money. Know? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, Rolling in the cash. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We, we go into education because we want to make an impact. Right. Um, and we have feelings about how we should do that. But if we have the goalpost in front to reach towards and we're all going towards the same thing then it kind of takes away the ego a little bit it takes mm-hmm. away the emotion out of it a little bit more and so it is based more on factual data versus just a feeling and so um so yeah it is and i think when and when what was really powerful for teachers too because we we take our own data my classroom data my student data very personal 
very personal. And it's not about us. It's about the kids. And it brings me back to where we started. It should always be about the kids and the students. And so if we can start bringing down some of those walls, if you will, physical or emotional walls about sharing our data with one another as educators and going, hey, I'm, I'm having a, my kids in my classroom are really struggling with fill in the blank. Can you help me? Mm-hmm. Or I see, you, you know, and, I, and it's getting better. And I've been in education for a long time since 1990. Five, mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> and it was we were all in our little silos then, and and it's still that way somewhat today. But once we empower the teachers to know that this data is not about you, it's not. It's about the students, right. and what can we do with that data to help the students? Because once the students are happier and making their goals and benchmarks and things like that, guess what? Your data is going to improve too, and you're going to feel that. right. The data isn't there to punish you as no, a teacher, and but right, it's yeah. often treated that way. Yeah. They often, well, they often feel like it's It's interpreted that way. That way Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the hardest things for teachers to, to get by. Like, oh, I, my class has all the struggling readers in it or whatever. Well, they probably chose you because you're a great educator. Right. And they need you. You know, and I, and I remember hearing that throughout my teaching career and Julie as well, that they need you because you're a great teacher. And I was like, but it's so hard. And it is hard. Yeah. But it's well worth the work. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think it goes back to a conversation of good infrastructure, Mm -hmm. whether it's like the organizational data infrastructure or it's the like bureaucratic infrastructure, Mm -hmm. right, of your um, of your district or your school that really makes data in the classroom a success. It's great, but it works best when it's part of that larger ecosystem uh, from the teacher all the way up to the district, even the state. Um, So what kind of focused top down implementations have you seen and what leads to their success? I'll say uh, one that's actually it was an it's a national initiative mm. and that happened back in 2004. Um, and Sabrina's Sabrina comes from the background of special education. I come from the background of response intervention, which which was part of uh, the reauthorization of IDA. And I I think that's where I see the biggest impact on data that we've seen in the in the past two decades essentially, mm-hmm. which is. The idea that kids were just being placed in special education because they had some behavioral problems or actually 90% of kids that have a learning disability were placed there because of a reading problem. Mm -hmm. And the goal was, I don't think these kids need to be in special education. Special education was meant to be a revolving door, right? We always say in special education, special education is a service, not a place. And it was supposed to be, you know, a, a set of services, a revolving door, and it, it wound up being a trap door because once yes. you're identified, you're identified. Right. And it changes your whole um, trajectory of where you're going in the future mm-hmm. for college right. and so forth. It becomes a label right. more so, so than an assistive program. Yeah, yeah. And so the idea of data there was, hey, we're over-identifying kids. And we need to start looking at ways to ensure that we're, one, keeping kids that don't need to be receiving those services out and letting the kids that do need the services in. Mm-hmm. And so that's the biggest, I think, from from a national standpoint, mm-hmm. that I think that's been the biggest impact we've seen. Because, again, that kind of started that conversation about intervention and yeah. how do we make make the most impactful. And so I what think- what... Well, to, to your point before we move on, what kind of um, support did you see that came top down to help make that initiative become a reality, right? Because just saying, let's make sure we're not over, uh, you know, over... Um, 
over identifying the students. There, but there are yes. plenty of structures at the at the state level and the and the national level because when you are tagged because they're looking at data, guess yeah. what? Of, of over identifying a subpopulation of students or whatever, that's when the structures are coming into place. And that's actually when I moved into the special education world was when in 2004, mm-hmm. uh, is when we had to go to a response to intervention. And that came with its own set of parameters and you know how often you assess, how many minutes a week it should be. So those things were built into the RTI process, now MTSS, depending on where you are. So those things were already in place. What was lacking was the understanding of the purpose of it, because many, and it took a lot of districts a while to get on board with this. It wasn't a hurry to get them in. It was hurry. Let's get the right ones in, yeah. like Julie said, and um, and that was uh, was um, difficult for, uh, to begin with. Number one, we did get some funding to go along with that. Um, different districts, depending on size and information like that. But with my district, actually, iStation was a huge part of our RTI process that I was actually able to be a part of writing the RTI manual back then, and. Um, they had to use the product with fidelity for a certain amount of time because we were on the naughty list because we had over identified <laughs> um, <laughs> right. certain populations. And my job was to figure out why. Right. And how do we get off this list, but not just kick kids out. No, we need to go back and revamp everything we did. Mm-hmm. So we had to put those structures into place about um who to assess, when to assess, how much data needed to be collected, what yeah. data needed to be collected. Yeah. You had to bring it before the board. I mean, it was it was a crazy, crazy process. But I will tell you, within two years, we were off the naughty list. Awesome. Um, and we increased the students who qualified for services, which is huge. So we didn't have as many DNQs, did not qualify. Mm. So we increased that. And we decreased the number of referrals because the kids were getting the right instruction. Right. That was huge. That's also when we went to having to have standards-based IEP piece, which was, again, having to teach the entire curriculum where special ed teachers Mm. were only accustomed to teaching those little isolated skills, now had to teach the entire curriculum. Well, they didn't understand how to do that. And so that's where iStation in our district came in because a lot of our resources have the academic language needed to teach some of those skills that those professionals weren't quite ready to do yet. What are the kind of immediate small scale decisions that you see teachers make in their instruction when they have data at their disposal. So if you just kind of had to give some examples or anecdotal context to like, okay, I I noticed something today, tomorrow I'm gonna try this with this student differently and feeling success there. Yeah, if you're looking at, at intervention specifically, if you're looking at targeting some some instruction yeah. um, for students in areas of weakness, they're doing that daily. Yeah. Well, they're supposed to be doing that daily. Right, right. Um, and so, the nice thing is if you're doing it daily and you're using formative assessment, you can make those adjustments quickly, mm-hmm. very quickly. And so it's not a matter of waiting until much later to make a change. You can make those changes One of the examples could be it could be something as simple as during my small group reading, I noticed that Julie consistently missed a certain sound then that teacher knows right away just being observant, you know, without collecting a manually data. I'm like, God, I noticed that Julie was always missing that medial vowel sound. So that lets me know I need to work a little extra time on her. And I can pull a book tomorrow, use the same book even, and go back and reteach just with her mm-hmm. or look for other students. And that's typically done in that small setting when they're doing the small group instruction. And you just take like jot notes. Julie's missing, you know, short vowel A. And then I start doing that constantly throughout my day so that tomorrow I'm going to go back and redo that again. 
you know, and see if there's a pattern there or reteach that. You can do it that way. It could be something for as simple as, wow, I, I noticed Daniel really liked submarines. When he was <laughs> in the library, he was looking at these submarine books. Subs are and, cool. And he's one of my gifted kids, so I've got to keep him engaged. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go find some books on submarines and I'm going to work with him maybe on cause and effect or inferencing some of these Ooh, higher level nice. things. So it's being in tune and teachers mm -hmm. naturally do that. I don't think they trust themselves enough sometimes to make those quick changes like that. Mm. But you do and you do that for the struggling reader, too, because then it goes back to that motivation. You know, and it was very, very simple. I, I had a student. I hate to tell stories all the time, but I, I love my kiddos who was really, really interested in the Navy wanted to be in the Navy. My husband was in the Navy mm. and he was also a behavior problem happened to be um, right. Most of my kids were. No. <laughs> um, and so in order to motivate him, I said, all right, I'll tell you what, Chris, I said, if, if you do X, then you can have 10 minutes in my husband's Navy yearbook looking because he had to have these big yearbooks mm -hmm. on his cruises that he went went on. And so he could have 10 minutes in there just to go look at pictures and ask questions and whatever, you know, and then all the other kids wanted to do it. So yeah. it just kind of went into this big, huge thing. I said, OK, so I turned it into a class goal. If the whole class increases our scores on iStation, mm -hmm. I was one of the first implementers of iStation. Oh, back. Cool. We started, I think, in 1998. I believe. Right when the company formed. Right. And I started using iStation in the year 2000. Nice. So I was one of the, the first adopters, if you will. Um, but I said, OK, if, if we as a group increase our score, I'll bring my husband in and he can come talk to you. So I use my husband as, 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 you as, know, as a reward. Yeah, as right. bait, absolutely. <laughs> and then some of the, the kids started asking all these questions. So then the next one's like, OK, this month I'm going to bring him in and we're going to learn how to fold the flag properly. Mm -hmm. And each fold has its own meaning. And so then it turned into a research paper. I mean, it just evolved yes. and it happened organically. And I think you have to look at where are their interests, where are the kids taking me and where do I need to go? And how can I dovetail that with data and instruction? And that where mm -hmm. that crosses is that art and science of teaching. Yeah, I love that. I love when there's the confluence of the like the gut feeling mm -hmm. and the the autonomy of the mm -hmm. teacher to mm -hmm. kind of uh, figure out their own instruction that mm -hmm. works for them that's reflective of their teaching style but also that works for their students that with being able to do all that and then still measure mm -hmm. for phonics still Absolutely. measure for you know literacy all all that mm -hmm. good stuff and yeah. I always say that that your gut instinct helps you develop the hypotheses, yeah. mm -hmm. but then data is going to help you actually Confirm prove it. that theory. Yeah. Right. Um, and so data plus insight equals opportunities. And so really that's what data is all about. It's to help you provide the best opportunity possible for, for your mm -hmm. students. Yeah. And listening to this, just listening to the kids and, and watching and learning from them too. So it's, it's, it, it, it is a, one of the most interesting, I, mean, I had several careers, yeah. but it is probably one of the most challenging and rewarding at the same time. Yeah. All right, so we're approaching the end of the conversation here, but um, I think this is a good, like, almost final point um, to talk about measuring success and, like, that that term, that feeling of, did I succeed as a teacher? With data, I think it's way easier mm -hmm. to, like, literally see improvements, um, but I still think even then it's good to kind of help redefine what does success really look like when you do have data handy and you can make those small changes and small analyses as well as the large scale ones to influence your whole curriculum. What's your advice or, or tips or anything on like how you can feel like you achieved success as a teacher, even with all these tools and resources? And I think it depends on who you're speaking with. Right. Um, 
for me, kind of going back around from, from where we started, but my first year teaching, like I said, I felt like a failure and it was just because I, I didn't really tangibly see the success that I wanted to see, which was, I wanted my kids to, uh, you know, do X, Y, and Z. And I wanted them to, to be happy and Mm -hmm. I wanted them to be motivated. And so as I started using data, for me, success was one that the kids were motivated to learn. Um, didn't mean that every child passed the state test at the end of the school year. That that was never my my goal. Um, I I think that oftentimes that's where education has kind of gone mm-hmm. um, in just really achieving to that end result of having them pass a test. For me, it was more in intrinsic. It was more about motivating kids and making them feel like superheroes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think success for me, uh, success, if the students left my classroom better than they came in, that is success. Yeah. And it doesn't matter where they started. Is did they feel feel better emotionally and academically? So I worked in some pretty tough schools. I worked in some very big urban schools in, in um, Texas and Title I schools and things like that. And sometimes the success is not an academic success. Sometimes it's an emotional success, mm-hmm. and um, it, which goes all into the motivation and things like that. But if if I can if they can leave my classroom better than they came in, I'm good. Yeah, yeah, and I, I like the flexibility of the goalpost mm. as data becomes, I think, more of an essential piece in the classroom. I I like that y'all are espousing the the ideology that it doesn't have to be you reach. 90% in this across the whole district and every student needs to do that for us to deem them a success. It's like, well, no, because every person uh, learns differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, sometimes even like, let's say a student makes it through the school year and more or less got a C or failed on a lot of stuff and whatever. But you felt that from the be- <laughs> you felt that from the beginning to the end of the school year they feel more confident in their Mm -hmm. ability to learn X thing, right? Mm -hmm. They feel more willing to raise their hand in class, to interact in a project, to be creative and express themselves in an authentic way. That matters just as much. And what's cool is that it can also be measured with data and you can also get a feel for, wow, this student, his responses on this open-ended thing got longer and longer as the school year went. Were they more correct? I, I don't know. But at least they opened up a little bit more. They were more willing to share their thoughts. And that's a win in and of itself. And I think, like, tying it all back around, recommunicating that back to the student and making them feel empowered in those small wins is just as important as mm-hmm. feeling like you reached an overall metric as a teacher. Correct. Sure. And, I, and I don't get don't get me wrong. I do feel like we need to strive towards Absolutely. ensuring that students are literate. Right. right. Um, Duh. Yeah. Especially, right. Especially literacy, because that ties into everything else, Success everywhere, right. all the content areas and and literacy equals opportunity mm-hmm. and illiteracy equals more crime. It equals mm-hmm. poverty. poverty. Mm-hmm. And there's a statistic that always oh. stuck in my head. I mean, oh, I know what you're going to say year I, for for that I taught Mm -hmm. and it was most um, prison systems that are built in states Mm -hmm. you know nationwide nationwide they come from that's how they project forward how many beds they're going to have how many new prisons they're going to build based on the number of third graders that cannot read at grade level that fail the third grade test no pressure third grade teachers dystopian (laughs) no honestly and and there's research that says if once you hit fourth grade if you if you cannot read there's like a quarter 
percent chance you're going to end up in prison. You're going to end up actually uh, catching up. So, so really, yes, we do want to strive towards that. Yeah. Um, but that comes with motivation and that comes right. with the growth mindset and that comes with. Well, just because you, I mean, I set a goal and I go back to the whole weight analogy because, yes, I'm currently on a diet. Uh, but <laughs> if I set my goal to lose five pounds and I only lose four, am I mad? No. No, right. I still I still lost four. Yeah. So the same thing, you set the goal for the student, I need you to be here, and they miss it by a little bit. It's okay, you still made progress. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to celebrate those little progresses throughout the year. And again, leaving better than they came, leaving the classroom better than when they came sets them up for success in the future for the next school year so eventually we start closing that gap you know and, and yeah. the bulk of my career was in third grade so yeah there was a lot of pressure there so a lot of your kids are in prison is that what you're saying <sighs> yes let's hope not no sad well, no. Sabrina's a teacher you never know <laughs> well, I did I, I rec- actually did have some hardcore kids who yeah. yeah yeah and it's tough and those are the ones you take home every night emotionally right yeah I may have gotten a letter or two from incarceration wow yeah. But the fact that that student still remembers me and writes me, right? He left my class right. better than he came. Right now, is he in a good spot now? No. Um, and I had been known to stalk my students all the way up through high school, saying, yeah. "Don't make me come have lunch with you yeah. because if I have to come take my, you know." And so it, it's loving the whole child, you know, no matter what. Yeah, like that, like they're your own, and right. they are. Right. Okay. Final point. We're gonna crystal ball a little bit, so. The psychic comes out. Um, Zoltar. Yeah, yeah, oh. Right. <laughs> Big? Yes. yes. You got it. 13 going on 30? No. Yes. Um, so where do y'all see data guiding the future of education? I know it's kind of a big, hazy question, um, but, you know, I, I, I'd also like just some thoughts on general top-down state or federal decrees. You know, like, I, how do you see future continue... Not future. How do you continue to see data integrate itself in the district, in the classroom, and even in the laws that come down from the state and federal level? I mean, if you can mm-hmm. postulate at all that you think might be an effective step forward for making data useful in the classroom. First of all, making a law is not going to make education any better. <laughs> number yeah. one, it doesn't right. start there. Right. Education happens in the classroom between the student and the child yeah. and the data all mixed in together. So just because you make a law doesn't mean it's going to get any better. Mm-hmm. Now, if we make a law and provide funding to go along with that, yes. And we come up with plans to go with that, absolutely. I think where I personally would like to see data going is, yes, we still need to look at students reading on grade level and moving, being literate and things like that. But I would love, personally, mm. to see data become not the dirty word that it is, not the four-letter word, the test word or data right. is also four letters. I would like it to be used as a t- seen as a tool, mm-hmm. not as a punishment. Because sometimes, if you only see nails, then everything's a hammer, right? So I think if we could see it as a tool that helps educators and helps students and helps parents, that our education system will increase dramatically versus it being used as a hammer over students' head and teachers' head and parents' head. Because believe me, I've only taught test grade, test-taking grade levels, if you will. I think yeah. they're all test-taking grade levels, but by state standards, that if that's the only way we're measuring success and giving schools grades on, you know, you know, were they A schools or B schools or C schools? Mm-hmm. I think that's the misuse of data. So I'd rather see it used to, to help education, not judge education. Right. right. And mm-hmm. going back to that problem solving process, you know, going back to that that idea that I think in anything we do in life, um, we use data. Yeah. It, it might not be that it might be that observational data. But again, going back to the idea of using allowing data to really drive 
what you do, to drive everything you do. Um, and so, yeah, going back to just making sure that we're using it the for tool. what it's what, what for it's the instrument for. of of why it was designed. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right, y'all. I feel like we've done a good comprehensive look into what makes data effective in the classroom, how to get it there effectively, and how to help coach the teacher and get them to a place where they feel comfortable making those kind of gut decisions because they know. They can back it up with data. They can back it up with an infrastructure, with a support system, with people like y'all at iStation to help guide them to that place where they feel comfortable making those kind of decisions. So thank you both so much for joining us on the podcast. It's always a pleasure getting to chat with some iStation professionals, Julie, Sabrina. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank Thank you you so much. Thanks for having us. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode of the EdTech Podcast. And if you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. You can also find our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And make sure you leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.